Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. So worldwide, we're looking at about 100 million women who have used hormonal birth control are currently on it. In the United States, it's about 11 million. What we've come to understand is that the way that has really been developed in medicine is that women are no longer using it primarily for pregnancy prevention. And so there's a lot of women around the world taking it for various reasons. In fact, it's been estimated as much as 58% of women use it for symptom management. I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when... I'm finally set free. What we do in life, echoes in eternity. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Only love can truly save the world. This is my mission now, forever. Hey, hey, welcome back to the podcast. This is Better with Dr. Stephanie, and I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. I am so excited to bring you today's podcast. I sat down for a lengthy, beautiful, gorgeous, nuanced conversation with Dr. Jolene Brighton. So if you have not heard of uh, Dr. Jolene before, she is a naturopathic physician. She's a best-selling author. And she is a, a prominent expert in women's medicine and really leads the world in the emerging science around post-birth control syndrome. So that is basically the effects of hormonal birth control on female health and vitality. She is an international speaker, a clinical educator, a medical advisor within the tech community, and she is considered a leading author authority on women's health. She is part of the Mind Body Green Collective, and her work has been featured pretty much everywhere, New York Post, Forbes, Cosmopolitan, The Huffington Post, uh, The Guardian, ABC News, Bustle, etc. Now, why this conversation is so great is primarily because we are both cut from the same cloth. We are both super nerds. We are both in, in, in the best possible way. And we actually, you know, even though our focuses are slightly different, we tend to talk about the same things. We talk about brain health. We talk about women's medicine. We talk about female bias. We talk about orgasms. We talk about health and vitality as it relates to female physiology. So you can, you'll be able to tell very easily um, the camaraderie and the absolute respect that I have for her and her work. Uh, this conversation was so long. I mean, I it really could have gone on for another couple of hours. I have decided to release our conversation over two episodes because it was that long and I don't expect you to listen to a two and a half hour conversation. Uh, so we are going to be breaking this up over uh, part one and part two. Now, in this first part, we had just recently seen each other at an event. So we were, uh, you know, kind of pre-chat chatting about, you know, the things that she loved about the event, things that we can make better. And then just sort of naturally, we flowed into totally off topic. We started talking about um, the root cause when you're going to, uh, you know, your primary healthcare provider. 
uh, your PCP health uh, health practitioner, the difference between the root cause of something and symptom management. And there is a time and place for both of them. So we really uh, started talking about that. We talked about the value of informed consent and why it is not discussed as often as it should. And where beliefs and feelings have their place in science. And I think that you'll find out relatively quickly that uh, both of us agree that science and the pursuit of wisdom and uh, knowledge, there is no place for beliefs or feelings in there. And then we talked about female bias. We just got on this kind of great, like nerd, you know, this like nerdy conversation around um, the challenges that we both face, uh, both being uh, clinicians and how we've had to advocate for our patients. So uh, that was not part of the uh, original planned conversation, but I hope you uh, enjoy that. We started off sort of the meat and potatoes, if you will, of the conversation talking about, you know, off-label uses of the pill, how, you know, it was, when it was introduced, who could get it and why. And we started talking about some of the risks and symptoms of the pill. Now, when I say the pill, I'm referring to hormonal uh, birth control. So it can be the pill, it can be, it can be other mediums as well. So we start talking about how the pill influences your mate selection and how that mate selection goes both ways. And then we moved into metabolism and how this really does influence the pro-inflammatory pathways in the body. So we talk about these pro-inflammatory pathways. We talk about changes in cholesterol regulation, how it can lead to uh, dyslipidemia, hyperlipidemia, and some of the influences in terms of you know, special populations. We talked about PCOS, women with polycystic uh, ovarian syndrome, and how this particular population might be at an increased risk for hypercholesterolemia, insulin dysregulation, et cetera, and poor cholesterol management when they are put on hormonal contraception. So that is where we get to in our first, in this first uh, series. In next week, we will move into brain health and mood. We will talk about sexual health and fertility and some other fun things. So without further ado, please enjoy the first half of my conversation with Dr. Jolene Brighton. I am a huge fan of the BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness, helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. 
Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot, as I have been doing, with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Dr. Jolene Brighton, welcome to the podcast. Hey there. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited that you're here today. We are going to do a deep dive into women's medicine. We're going to talk about women's sexual and reproductive health. And I'm so ex- I've known you for a while. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast because, you know, the nerd in me loves and honors the the nerd in you. So we're going to have a really great there needs conversation. It's going to be like a namaste for nerds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 100%, 100%. So I want to I also want to be doing a deep dive with your book Beyond the Pill. And talking about uh, hormonal birth control with the intention of like, there's, this is a no shame podcast. So with the intention here of helping women and of course the men who love them make an informed consent for their health and vitality. So, and I'll, maybe I'll start by leaving an open loop because often sometimes you talk about the pill and then like half the men turn off. So I'll leave an open loop and say, you know, if you are a man who loves sex, um, this is going to be, and lots of it, you know, this might be a really great conversation for you to stick around and listen to. And birth control influences the type of women that are attracted to you and the women you're attracted to. So this is definitely a very relevant conversation for men as well. And I just want to say, I so appreciate you holding space for this to be a shame-free conversation. You know, when it comes to hormonal birth control, I don't know how it is. So you're sitting in Canada. I'm sitting in Portland, Oregon in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's like this super taboo thing. Like you can't question it. You can't talk about the side effects because it's somehow is, uh, you know, questioning women's rights. And that's really not what it's about. It's about that informed consent. It's about having all the information, removing the fear, because I don't think there's anything more scary than the unknown. So removing that fear so that you can make the best decision for yourself and to stop the stigma and the shaming and the gaslighting that does happen within medical practices when women do present with side effects and are told things like, this is just in your head or no, there's no research study to support this. Therefore, like why, why would you have these issues? Why would you have these symptoms? Or your story is not relevant. Your story doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. often you hear me say your doctor doesn't need to have a research study to believe your story. And Mm -hmm. that's what we have to recognize is that hormonal birth control was developed for young, healthy females. So that means you don't have a pre-existing medical condition. That means that you're probably in your early 20s, maybe younger, 
And with all of that, uh, there's these expected outcomes that we see that we make generalizations about as clinicians. However, when you get into the research, there's a whole lot of outliers. And as we understand now that women are being prescribed hormonal birth control for symptom management, for diseases, for mm-hmm. you know being in your 40s and going through perimenopause, like we expect there to be basically the gray zone is what I call it. Clinicians want to see it black and white. You're either, it's going to work for you or it's not going to work for you. And really there's a whole lot of gray where we can fall into that. And so it's very much my intention in this conversation to shed light on what's what we know, what we don't know, where we need to go next, mm-hmm. why you might be having the symptoms that you're having, and how to stay safe if you choose to use hormonal birth control. And for everyone listening, if you are a clinician, this might be a bitter pill to swallow, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, again, nerd jokes. Um, wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, to understand that, you know, as I went through writing Beyond the Pill, I used hormonal birth control for 10 years. I'm a first-generation college student because I had that tool to leverage. I come from a giant, giant Hispanic family. So this is a really, really big deal for me. And I was also born to a teenager, two teenagers. So my parents, that was a teen pregnancy right there. So none of this is lost on me, like how important hormonal birth control is and how to leverage it. And yet when I went through and I started looking at all the research as being someone who prescribed hormonal birth control, there were moments where I just didn't want to believe what I was reading. I just didn't want to believe it. And there were ugly cries that happened while I wrote that book thinking, you know, the first, our Hippocratic oath is first do no harm. Mm -hmm. And to think that I did in fact do harm for some women when I prescribed them hormonal birth control because they knew not what I did. And there's going to be a lot of clinicians, I'm sure, because you are a clinician who are listening to this podcast and understand that it takes a whole lot of courage, a whole lot of humility, and a whole lot of curiosity to be able to hear these words and to not judge yourself harshly and to know that as we gain more information, we can do better for women. And if you are a woman who's ever used hormonal birth control and you didn't know the things we're going to talk about, girl, I did not know them either. So mm-hmm. no, no case of the judges going on here. 100%. So let's, let's start off with uh, just a basic estimate. Do you know how many people are on the pill or are currently on the pill or have taken the pill? Is there uh, an estimate that you're aware of worldwide or in the, in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. So worldwide, we're looking at about 100 million women who have used hormonal birth control or are currently on it. In the United States, it's about 11 million. Mm-hmm. So this is not an insignificant number. Right. And in that, what we've come to understand is that the way that has really been developed in medicine is that women are no longer using it primarily for pregnancy prevention. And so there's a lot of women around the world taking it for various reasons. In fact, it's been estimated as much as 58% of women use it for symptom management. Wow. And, you know, so not talking, for contraception, not for not the original. For contraception. So for okay. acne, painful periods, regular periods, missing periods, women who are experiencing menstrual migraines. Basically, we call it the pill for every female ill. Well, we, mm-hmm. me, I call it that. And, um, and that's really what's passed to women is that if you've got a hormonal issue, let's go ahead and pass you birth control because you know, for the most part, it's, women, please understand it is not that your doctor is bad. It is that science has left us behind. Right. That science has not done its due diligence in women's medicine, uh, due diligence um, in women's medicine. And in that, to understand that this medication was developed for pregnancy prevention and for spacing pregnancy, but doctors, you know, then were taught that, and and drug companies started to formulate it and said, 
This can help with PMDD and PMS. And if you have endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome, and the trouble in that is that uh, it's actually delaying diagnosis in a lot of these cases. So if you have irregular periods and it's because of hypothyroidism or PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, you may be put on a medication that induces withdrawal bleed and then nobody questions what's actually going on. And I'm sure you've seen this. I've seen this a lot in my practice mm-hmm. where I'm diagnosing these conditions. Women are in their 30s and they've had these symptoms for almost two decades and nobody asked why. Nobody investigated. Then they go to get pregnant. They can't get pregnant. And that's where you know a bit of What's called a myth is that birth control causes infertility. We don't have any evidence to show that, but we don't have any substantial evidence to show that it could not, without a doubt, ever influence a certain woman's fertility. But what often happens is that you were put on birth control for symptom management. And as it turns out, those symptoms are really rooted in conditions that are associated with infertility. So if you have endometriosis, which is adhesions that can, you know, I I like to joke and say like your uterine lining, you know, where it's supposed to be in your uterus and an endo, it shows up everywhere else Mm -hmm. uh, and anywhere Mm -hmm. else it really can. Mm -hmm. However, it's not the exact same tissue. So for women to understand, it's a little bit different than the endometrial lining, but it responds to hormones in the same way. But with that, that's a leading cause of infertility. And that's really something that should be investigated. However, we see the younger and longer someone is put on birth control for these painful periods, the higher the probability is it's going to turn out to be endometriosis. And I think that, you know, to your point, most of the reasons, like if you said 58% of women are using the pill for off-label use, which is to say that for the most part, this is not what is the medication is intended for and or approved for use by the FDA. And it's interesting because when you look at some of the advertising uh, from some of these uh, pharma manufacturers, it's almost like, you know, uh, they pitch, like the sales pitch is, well, we're going to, you know, this menstruation is this annoying thing that we're going to help mm. ameliorate, like be ameliorated uh, with, with yes, our products. Save us from our periods. <laughs> Please save us from our periods, which is, which is from the get-go, I think, looking at your menstrual cycle incorrectly because the point of your period is not to bleed. Uh, the point of your menstrual cycle, rather, is not to bleed. The point of your menstrual cycle is to ovulate. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. And I love that you you say that. You know, I think, um, so there have been some trials and, and um, some contraceptives are approved for things like PMDD. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've seen that, but very much, like I, I think um, Dr. Lara Brighton put it best when she said in her book, it's your monthly report card. Your right. menstrual cycle as mm-hmm. ACOG, um, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have ter- deemed it, is the fifth vital sign. Yes. So blood pressure, pulse, respiration, temperature, these things that let us know about your health and you know if you're really sick or potentially in a life-threatening situation, you know, your period is regarded the same. It's not just your period, but your entire menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. And I love the framing that it's, it's not the focus is not the period because even while you bleed, and I think this is really important for women to understand, and we can even go through a whole menstrual cycle if you want to go there. But while you bleed, your uterus is doing one thing. The uterus is like, all right, baby didn't happen. Wah, wah. Let's shed the lining and mm-hmm. let's do it again. But your ovaries are doing something very different. The, the brain is signaling to the ovaries to make estrogen. So even while you're bleeding, you're making hormones. And this is where it gets confusing because 
medicine talks about the three phases of the menstrual cycle, and then you'll hear other people talk about the four phases of the menstrual cycle. I don't think either is a right or wrong. These are just ways that we try to explore and understand. But yeah. what gets confusing is that you know the four phases is talking about your period like it's a different phase. That's uterine-specific that's not ovary specific. And so while you may be feeling different during your period and you want to honor that in a different way, uh, know that your ovaries are already on it again to get an egg ready to ovulate because that's the name of the game. And that is where you know hormonal birth control can rob us of what I call our superpowers. Like throughout the menstrual cycle, we have this ebb and flow of hormones that really gives us superpowers. At no point in your menstrual cycle are you ever the lesser or weaker. You just have different powers to harness at different times, which I think is pretty epic. And yet, while you're on hormonal birth control, all of that is muted. And I didn't understand this. I you know, started hormonal birth control because I, I bled for more than seven days. I was in so much pain. And I also didn't want to have a baby. But I had, and I was like, you'll bleed when I tell you to bleed, body. I literally yeah. said that. Oh yeah. my gosh. My 18-year-old <laughs> self. Oh my goodness. Let's just so, hug her. For people who can't see me, I was just smacking my own face. <laughs> I was just like, no, cut it down there. But, you know, to understand that you are muted, your hormones are mute, your sex hormones are not cycling like they normally would which is a good thing if what your goal is, is to shut down ovulation and to prevent pregnancy. Now, there's a lot of ways to prevent pregnancy these days, and we still have a long way to go. I think that we can definitely see more iterations in all of this. But you know, to your point with the symptom management and understanding that your symptoms are your body's way of speaking up to you. To you, and when we talk about uh, you know symptom management, we need to be forthcoming about that. If I'm passing you something and I'm only managing your symptoms, it is my job as a doctor to say that. If I am addressing your root cause, I will also say that. And it's not an either or, everyone. I'm a big fan of like, let's make those symptoms gone like yesterday so we can do that root cause work. Right. Because if you are writhing in pain and you can't even leave your house, let alone go to the grocery, how in the heck are you going to shift your diet, exercise? Like, how are you going to get more sleep? Like, all of these foundational lifestyle pieces that we know move the needle in root cause resolution, they require time, energy, effort. And sometimes you need to get people out of symptoms and, and symptom crisis so that they're able to do that. And I think that's a really important thing for women to understand this conversation is that you can... Yeah, I like the buffet approach. You can have the entire buffet and you can pick and choose what you want that day. And you can have your pharmaceuticals and your, your diet dialed in too. Like you don't have to choose. And I think there's a lot of people who start dividing camps being like, oh, you're either pro-birth control or anti-birth control. And I'm like, I am the, my husband says I'm the most annoying person to argue with because I never am like solely on one side of things. Well, not never. I'm sure it happens. But I usually will, I'll argue their side. I'll argue my side. I'll argue another side. And sometimes I'll come to the conclusion that we're all wrong. And right. like, he's like, you right. never just like pick a side. I'm like, because the world is not that black and white and a complex biological system is not that cut and dry. And it's nuanced and it's yeah. nuanced. Yes. And for every individual, there's going to be an individual. Yes. I a hundred percent agree with you. And I'm, I've been told the same thing that I'm very much a conservative right down the center because I can see both sides of things. But I think that that's really how you, when you are making decisions, that's true informed consent when you can actually understand the pros and the cons and say, okay, these are the things that I like. These are the things I don't like. And this is what I'm going to do based on what's right for me. Totally. And 
understanding that belief really has no place in medicine or science. And right. So, your feelings just, don't. <laughs> your feelings, actually, yeah. thinking, oh, here it is. This is my coffee mug. My mm-hmm. science doesn't care what you believe. Now, right, I love right. me some beliefs because I have mm-hmm. my own. Right. Um, and yeah, I think it's really important. So I just did this post. Um, I did a whole article on plan B and how it works and helping women understand that. And there were women who said to me, well, I believe, so that goes with plan B. So women understand this is a progestin based medication. Uh, progestin is what you find in all hormonal contraceptives. So understand that in beyond the pill, if I talk about progestin, I'm talking about the pill, the patch, the ring, the IUD, the Nuva ring, uh, the implant, like all of them have progestin, the mini pill as well. So with the morning after pill or plan B, this is a medication that's job is to prevent ovulation. That is the mechanism of action. That's the main way it works. Mm-hmm. But it can also thin the endometrium. So if, you, if sperm does meet egg, implantation doesn't occur. It also can thicken cervical mucus to try to block sperm from needing egg. So this is important to understand because this is how progestin-only contraceptives work as well. Now, when I put this out, there were some women who said, you, you made a statement that it will not terminate a viable pregnancy. Correct. That is the statement in science. That is the statement in medicine. And then they said, except that conception begins, uh, or excuse me, life begins at conception when egg Mm. meets sperm. To which I said, I'm not going to argue beliefs and and I'm not going to tell you my beliefs because that doesn't, that's not fair for me to Mm -hmm. be in a place of authority and Mm -hmm. then tell you my beliefs because that's going to influence you. So I'm not going to argue that. All I'm going to do is provide you education to understand that if implantation has already occurred, this is not a medication. There's other medications that do that. This is not the medication that will cause an abortion if you're, if you're viewing it in those terms. But to also understand that if your belief is, is that life begins at conception, then a progestin-only IUD or a mini pill may not be what you want to choose because of your own ethics and your belief system. Now, me as a doctor, who doctors should be scientists, I'm not going to, to tell you like what I believe about all of that. I'm going to present you the information because I don't think I've had patients, this is their belief. And when I tell them, okay, well, you have a marina IUD and it doesn't always shut down ovulation. It may prevent egg from meeting sperm, but it may be actually working that by way of thinning the endometrial lining and making it so an egg can't implant. Right. Are you okay with that? And I've had women say, absolutely not. I had no idea. And it's is this kind of nuanced language of like, we as doctors, we don't always necessarily think to talk about that. Like we think to talk about like stroke, heart attack, uh, you know, even acne or, you know, what might happen uh, with like expulsion of an IUD, but maybe not so much considering the belief. And so I just bring this up because for me, and, and, and really, I think for many women, we don't need other people's beliefs when we're trying to make an informed decision. We need the facts and we need the information and we can frame those within our belief system. Right. However, what I'm seeing as a slippery slope is doctors will actually say, I've had doctors say to me, I don't believe that birth control can cause any mood issues. I don't believe that birth control is going to lead to nutrient depletions. I'm like, well, beliefs aside, there's actually research and the research mm-hmm. is yes, mm-hmm. but it's important for you to understand the language you just used is a belief. It's so much harder to shift a belief than to shift your understanding of the facts. That's right. And that's also going to, you know, when we think about beliefs, those drive all of our behavior. So if you have Mm -hmm. a medical practitioner or any PCP that has a certain belief about something that is going to drive their behaviors, the language that they're going to use with their patient, and that's going to, you know, 
influence either positively or negatively the patient's experience and the patient outcomes, which is, you know, not really for the doctor the like you were saying to your point, the doctor, you know, the, you know, we, when we just look at the definition of the word doctor, it's to teach. So our job is to teach and empower our patients so that they can make the best decision for them. Mm-hmm. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. And that's part of, uh, you know, it's funny. I've actually not gone here, I think, in any interview talking about this, but I, I know how you operate as well. And I think that's part of, you know, we, what we have to recognize is that belief plays a huge role. I mean, placebo effect is tremendous. I love yep. research on placebo effect. Mm-hmm. So that I'm like, dang, you just had to think it was going to work, even though they told you it wasn't going to work, like, and you just thought it and it worked, like, mm-hmm. or the, um, the one, there was a study on IBS where, um, they told the people taking the drug, the, the drug, I'm doing air quotes, that it wasn't, they, they were taking a placebo and those mm-hmm. people still had benefits and effects. And so belief plays a really big role. And in addition to this, the way that we're presenting ourselves as doctors and how we're interacting with our patients is really important in building trust. And we're seeing that more and more women are saying they don't trust their doctors, that they're looking outside their doctor because they don't trust what they're going to recommend. And I think that's something that I don't, you know, as doctors, I'm sure like, I don't like hearing that. And yet I have to, I have to sit back and ask why, like, what is it that's making people feel like they need to you know, turn to every other source on the internet instead of like having a one-on-one conversation with their doctor. And I think part of that is that we know there is an inherent medical gender bias in women's health. We weren't included in studies until the 90s, unless those studies were very specific on women. So we're being given the same cardiac drugs, for example, as men. And, And science just basically says same, same. Like, a woman, that's just a smaller version of a man. That's that right. Actually yeah. grows a human in its body and also makes milk and you know, right. does all these other things and is a complex cyclical creature. So we have to recognize that there is this inherent bias and there are medical schools. So, you know, Harvard University, other predominant medical schools, which are recognizing the female bias that before a doctor even walks in the room, they see an F on the chart for female mm-hmm. and they've kind of already made up their mind in some instances, it's not all doctors. Okay. But in some instances, the doctors already made up their mind that this woman is most likely making up her symptoms, attention seeking, or just having anxiety. Hysterical. Hysterical. Yes. Throw back, you know, there's yes. still textbooks from the fifties that yep. like had hysteria listed as like something legit. Mm-hmm. By the way, if anybody thinks that's legit, let's just shut it down right now. That's not a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your uterus is not right. wandering your body and making you crazy. Right. Uh, 
And in all of that, you know, there's, I think there's been this ugly history in women's medicine. I mean, just bringing up hysteria, hysterectomies, uh, about the, there's been female sterilization without our consent. There were instances where, you know, there was a period of time where they just knocked us out. They put us under and then they treated us like a piece of meat that was in the way of getting a baby out. Like right. there is this dark history and this is our opportunity to rewrite a new story in women's medicine. But the only way that we do that is when we include the female patients as part of the conversation and stop acting like we put on a white coat and therefore everything we say is gospel. Like that's, that's not the way forward. On a plus side, that's where vibrators came from. So yeah, we can't, we can't, we can't thank, you know, the, you know, it was a cure for hysteria where we had these males who were, you know, manually masturbating their pa- their patients to, uh, to climax and their hands were getting tired. And this is where the vibrator, this is the origin story of the vibrator. But, totally. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, check my necklace. It's oxytocin. Oh, I love, I love. That's so I cool. Left. I was like, um, I pretty much am wearing an orgasm around my neck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Let's okay. So let's. I want to circle. If let's come back, we can. I want to come back to some of the signs and symptoms of the pill. So in your book, Beyond the Pill, uh, I I have to say when I was reading some of these things. You know, well, I think first of all, I think that to your point, the public generally views hormonal contraception, you know, contraceptives as this benign intervention. But when I was reading about mate selection, I could not believe what I was reading. So let's just start. I want to what I want to what I would like to do. Uh, is kind of walk through system by system in terms of how mm-hmm. hormonal contraceptions can uh, can affect us. And I want to start with mate selection because it is yeah. almost so outrageous. So please, let's start with let's start with mate selection. So I will say, when it comes to mate selection and orgasm talk, that's when every man runs into the room to listen in. So yeah. here we go. Right? Yeah. Okay. So- Closing part of that open loop from before. Yeah. Totally. Now here's the deal. First thing you have to understand is that you're an animal. And while we like to think we're super evolved humans, and we are in a lot of ways, we're still animals, which Mm -hmm. means that our sense of smell is still very, very important. And in fact, this is how we select for mates. One of the ways that we select for mates is by the pheromones that they put off. Now, are the pheromones just them smelling good? Maybe. But really what's going on is that they're telling us about their genetics and their MHC complex, which is the major histocompatibility complex. So it's going to tell us about their immune system. Mm-hmm. Now, if you are not on birth control, you actually will select for a mate who's as genetically dislike you as possible. So not you, not like you, not even in your family. And so what does that do? It gives our offspring basically a better shot at genetic variability and so that the best genes win. Now, when you're on hormonal birth control, you actually select for someone who's more similar to you, like think your cousin genetically, which is about when everybody goes, ew, and it only gets worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. we're, still, just- we're still going to go down from there. Yeah. yeah sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, what's really interesting ab- about this, okay, so women are selecting for men who are m- more genetically similar. They're also selecting for men who look more feminine. And so they did a study where they put these women in front of these screens, men and women's faces, and they can manipulate them to make them as gorgeous as possible. So they're just like, 
have at it. Make him the sexiest beast you can. Mm-hmm. And um, I have Jason Momoa in my mind as I say that. <laughs> <laughs> Aquaman. Yes. Love yeah, him. Aquaman. Love him. Yeah. Oh, Khal Drago. <laughs> so, now we're going to have to go down Game of Thrones, right? So with that, uh, they then put women on hormonal birth control and had them come back three months later. And what they found is they manipulated the men's faces. So initially, they made the men have these strong jaws. They were like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. And I use that because if anyone's seen that, he has a whole song dedicated to how manly he is. And he ain't wrong. He's he's spot on. So that's how they first manipulated the faces. They come back. Now they make the men more feminine. The jawline structure starts to change. They didn't do anything to women's faces, but they started to manipulate their potential mates to look more like women unless like men, which is something where researchers are like, well, this might be why women on hormonal birth control, they actually select for men what they prioritize, what they find is most important is not how attracted they are to them. It is more about how much money do they make? Yes, men, you just heard that right. She's a gold digger. Uh, But it's not just about like how much money, but it's also how smart he is. Now, what does this translate to in modern society? this is the fittest of the species, right? Mm -hmm. So what we select for when we're not on birth control is that alpha male. He's big, he's strong, he protects us, he smells delicious. When Mm -hmm. we're on birth control, we want the smart guy who earns money. That is like modern society's way of selecting. And so it's almost like this artificial shift where we don't know inherently as the animals we are how we should be selecting for mates. And so we start overthinking like, okay, okay, let me think about who should I actually be selecting for. But what's sad about this is that when women come off of hormonal birth control, they can be at a higher risk of divorce and initiating the divorce. They also then begin to prioritize how attractive their mate is. And while hormonal birth control can rob you of your libido, and we can certainly talk more about that, When you come off of it, if you've selected your mate while you were on it and you come off of it, you may report more sexual dissatisfaction. And what researchers believe is is because you were never matched to begin with. You never were. You had this chemical that was clouding you. Now, does that mean you just stay on it because if you get off, you might get a divorce? That is why there are marriage counselors around Mm. the world. No, I don't think it has to end up that way. But I do think that there's going to be a process that you have to go through. And I've seen this with patients where we go into marriage counseling. Sometimes they work with the sex therapist as well. And they start to work on this with the understanding of, I was under the influence of of drugs, right? I was Mm. under the influence. Yes, I was under the influence. Yeah. 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 And so in that, now that I've come off, while I'm feeling this disconnect, that doesn't mean that's just the way it is. Like our, well, evolutionarily speaking, our biology can rule a lot and our hormones certainly do. It's not the end all be all. Now on the flip side with men, you know, men actually, so uh, erotic dancers, I'm like, what is the PC word for stripper? And I'm, you guys I just want to own that, that I'm like... Professional? <laughs> maybe professional? Professional dancer? Professional dancer? I'm like, maybe? are you a ballerina? I don't yeah. know. Not a ballerina. Yeah. Yeah. I, so yeah. like... Exotic uh, dancer. I think I'm that that's I'm not disrespecting PC. anybody. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Yeah. So in that though, if they're ovulating, they get tipped more. They make more money. If they are wow. on a period, they make mm-hmm. less. If they're mm-hmm. on birth control, they ain't making money. 
And the, because men can actually pick up on these differences and that her hormones are on mute. She's not communicating to him mm. in the same way. And so this mm-hmm. is just a really important distinction because so it goes both ways. Like that mate selection goes does. both ways. That's crazy. Yeah. I know. I could have written an entire chapter on this in my book, but there are things that had to get cut out. Mm-hmm. You guys, when I turned it in, it was 100,000 words and they were like, you have to cut at least 30,000 words. And so there was a lot that got cut out. Um, and yet there's still so much we don't know about women um, not sensing danger and risk in the same way and putting themselves in riskier situations while on hormonal birth control. These subtle changes that happen, and we call them subtle because we really haven't studied them. We think they're subtle, but it may not just affect your mate. It may also affect how you interact with your child, with your sister, with your mother, with your community. And the truth is, is there's a whole lot we don't know about hormonal birth control's influence over female behavior because the studies haven't been done. And in fact, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kissling said in Scientific American in 2019 that the use of hormonal birth control for menstrual suppression, so that is shutting down your period, is the longest and uh, largest uncontrolled medical experiment we've ever had. Now, I'm paraphrasing. So if you Google it, guys, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But in that, it's very important to understand that while clinicians are like, we've had it forever, it's totally safe, and like, and this is what we're being told as women, and it's our right to have it. 100% it's our right to have it, just like it's 100% our right to have all the information about it to mm-hmm. make the best decision. We've got researchers on the other end of the spectrum who are like, doctors aren't even sharing the full story. They don't even know the full story because they're not reading neuroscience journals. Like they're not doing that. They're over here in JAMA. And my friend, Dr. Um, Sarah Hill wrote, this is your brain on birth control. Mm -hmm. And it's a fascinating read. And she didn't read beyond the pill. My book came out first. Then she sent me her book and said, will you review this before it comes out? And when I did, uh, her and I started conversing. We're now friends because how do you not be when you're nerding out on the same stuff? Right. And you know, her and I, the thing that was most delightful is to see how we both read the same studies and came to the same conclusion and how often we iterate the same message, yet never having known each other or known of each other's work Mm -hmm. until like her book was coming out and we connected that way. There are lots of researchers out there saying, we don't have the full story. We don't have enough information. We don't understand why this happens in some women and we need to do better by women and get that research. And at the same time, we're seeing gynecologists saying, no, birth control protects you against endometrial cancer. Why question it? It's amazing. I love my birth control. Oh, you have to, I actually saw someone say, you have to pry it from my cold, dead hands. And I was like, Ugh, be very careful with the words. That Maybe. You when yeah. you're on a medication that right. can increase the risk of having a clot or cancer. And so, yeah, or yes. cerebrovascular, yeah, cardiovascular incident. Yeah, you may totally. be right. We may, we may pry it from your cold, dead hands. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. just the thing, though, is like, uh, you know, what's really interesting, though, about you being in um, Canada is that I was, um, it was back to school time. And I was like, okay, I know what happens at back to school time. Everybody's passed their birth control when they go off to college. So, like, let's talk about how how to stay safe on birth control. And Mm -hmm. maybe you're a college student and you're like, (laughs) one, you're a college student, you're like, I roll, I'm gonna listen to this lady about birth control. But secondly, maybe you don't wanna read a book or you don't have time to read a book. So I'm like, let me just put out an article on this. And 
I was going through some of the recommendations in a medical database, and I list in my book MTHFR as something we should screen. This is an enzyme, for people who don't know, that helps with processing folate, but it's also related to increased risk of cardiovascular issues. Now, with that, I put that in my book. In the United States, doctors have been like, you're crazy. No one screens for that. Why would you do it? You should also screen for factor two and factor five Leiden, because if you have these, then we can predict your risk of having a clot. And while it's a small portion of women who have a clot, understand that if it travels to your lungs, it's estimated 20 to 25% of people die when it becomes a pulmonary embolism. Plus it's a stroke. And there's also not a really great medical intervention for a pulmonary embolism. Like if you get an embolism, you're, you're, you're in, to be crude, it's you're kind of a dead duck. Like you're just waiting. There's not really great interventions with with. Or that. how about a stroke? Like, and this mm. is the thing of like we can say statistically speaking, it's a small portion of women. It's not a, like one to two percent. It's not small uh, in my mind, but we can say statistically speaking, the you know proportion of women who develop breast cancer at a higher rate being on birth control is small, or having a stroke. But but what are we talking about here? We're talking about medical conditions that are not only life-threatening, but affect her quality of life and affect her entire community. Like her, uh, you know, I've talked with parents who are like, my daughter had a stroke and now she's a vegetable and like, we're taking care of her and she is Mm -hmm. very, and like, we're trying right now to get our daughter back. Other parents who've completely lost their daughters because these things weren't screened for because what, which, which is so insane to me. What I hear from doctors is, that's not standard screening. We only screen for that when there's an issue. I'm like, but what's the issue? The issue is like, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Like you might be collecting a tombstone. Like, and that is not to be like ominous to everyone, but like, we've got to wake up to the reality that nobody is expendable. Not Mm -hmm. a single person is expendable. And to my point in Canada, so I'm called crazy in the United States because they talk about MTHFR as a possible contraindication to using hormonal birth control. And yet here it is in this database that's like, hey, here's all the warnings in the United States. The Canadian specific warning on the label also includes MTHFR. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. oh, does anyone want to say politics here? Because what what is the difference between a Canadian woman and a United States woman? There's no difference here. There's no difference. It doesn't matter where we arbitrarily drew boundaries on a map. Like, there Mm -hmm. is no difference. And so, it's this kind of stuff that I'm like, we need to be uniting clinicians globally, researchers globally, and we need to hold space to have the conversation in this. So, we've hit mate selection. We've mm-hmm. hit a bit of the, the big scaries. Um, yeah. What yeah. system, where do you want to go next? Let's, um, you have an entire chapter on metabolic derangements. I believe, I think you call it metabolic mayhem. So yeah. I would love for you to go through some of the uh, pro-inflammatory either pathways or some of the, you know, the nutrient depletions that we see when we're on hormonal contraception. Mm-hmm. Now, in that chapter eight, metabolic mayhem, uh, reversing metabolic mayhem, I, I think it's important for people to understand it brought me no delight to write a chapter about stroke, heart attack, cancer. In fact, I hate that chapter because I did not want to deliver anything in a scary way, but how do you talk mm-hmm. about this and not be scary? And I don't hate right. the chapter as in like, oh, it just was so hard to write. It's and hard. I know. I my understand. editors know how I went round and round and, and uh, they're like, well, like talk more about this. And I'm like, but that gets really scary quick. And I don't want her to get scared. I want mm-hmm. her to feel informed, empowered, ready to go to her doctor, have a conversation. Mm-hmm. But what else I talk about in that chapter is also the issues with insulin dysregulation. Mm-hmm. We've known for a long time 
that women on hormonal birth control can have insulin desensitization. And it's been compared to pregnancy where they're like, well, it's similar as pregnancy. A lot of things get compared to pregnancy. However, it's all take a moment recognized. Nobody spends 10 years pregnant or 20 years or 30 years. And a lot of us spend decades on hormonal birth control. Without a break, yes. Without a break. Yeah. Now, and what's even scarier is they're like, there's no reason to have your period while on hormonal birth control. And it's like, well, true. And yet, maybe we should still have breaks from these hormones. Right. Now, especially in- when women are put on since like, you know, I, I know we're going to eventually get to the Danish study, but when you are put on birth control from adolescence and you don't yeah. have the opportunity to experience menstruation and to have your brain and your gonads talking to each other, uh, yeah. this, this is a travesty. So, yeah. Yeah, well, we should definitely talk about that uh, more. But I, I'm yeah. gonna finish up the yeah. the metabolic piece. Um, yes, I'm, I'm trying. You you gave me a roadmap, and I'm like, okay, I I very much want to say <laughs> we can we can <laughs> meander. It's okay. We can we can go as long as you want. I really this is such an important topic because you and I you and I often talk about very similar themes. I often talk about things from a brain based perspective. You are very much you know we talk about or we both talk about sex. We both talk. So I definitely want to give you the platform to just go. Let's just go on a geeky magic carpet ride together and wherever it takes us is where we go. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you bring it up about the brain because while doctors are outright dismissing and we'll talk more about the mood stuff and saying like, oh no, it doesn't have any impact on the female brain. It's like, that's exactly how it works. If Mm -hmm. it's going to shut down ovulation, it works at the brain level, Mm -hmm. not at the ovarian level. And I've actually had doctors where I explain that to them and they're like, oh snap, wait, come again. I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you've never Mm -hmm. thought about the negative feedback loop. No, because there's so much more to think about in being a doctor. A lot of the times that's where that comes from. Now, uh, to the point with insulin, what's interesting is we saw that if women have ever used hormonal birth control uh, for six months or more in their lifetime, they have an over 30% risk of developing diabetes postmenopausal. So this is something that like we, we hadn't really understood until just a couple of years ago. And so, you know, and just recently, Another study came out, I'm actually going to be presenting uh, information on this at uh, a medical conference this December. This study, though, was fascinating. Have you ever used hormonal birth control? You are at a lifetime increased risk of depression. So it's not, it's not like just a one and done. And like once we get off of it, like, oh, we can just reverse everything, which is interesting because it's what I've been saying with post-birth control syndrome for a very long time. And no, you're never going to find a study. Well, you will one day. It's going to happen. But as of right now, you're never going to find a study that says post-birth control syndrome. Um, you're not going to find studies that are actually... Uh, robust on the long-term implications of having ever used it. Studies are expensive. Women are expensive to study. And it's very inconvenient for manufacturers of this pharmaceutical to have these kinds of studies come out. So with the metabolic mayhem, we've got the insulin piece. We know that hormonal birth control raises cholesterol. So this is very important for women with polycystic ovarian syndrome who already have high cholesterol. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. yeah Certain yeah. formulations uh, mm-hmm. will can increase your blood pressure. So you should, you should get your blood pressure checked before you start it and continue to monitor it. Um, certain formulations can lead to arrhythmias. So uh, in the family of like Yaz, Yasmin, Ocella, because they have a potassium sparing, uh, and th- for everybody listening, that means you hold on to potassium. They have a potassium sparing uh, progestin, that's a synthetic progesterone in them. That can be problematic. That's why we see higher incidences of cardiovascular events with women on those particular forms. And in addition to understand that 
if you are also taking something like ibuprofen for your period pain, which is a potassium sparing drug as well, and you are predisposed to having an issue, uh, you might have that issue because now you're taking like 800 milligrams of ibuprofen for those period cramps that your doctor said the pill would fix, but it didn't quite fix. Mm -hmm. And so this is just the kind of dialogue that we need to have. It doesn't mean that you have to be afraid, but you have to be in the know because if you are experiencing heart palpitations every time you pop ibuprofen and you're on one of these pharmaceuticals like the um, Yaz, Yasmin, Ocella, the Drosperinone, family, then that may be the first signs and symptoms that something is not right in the cardiovascular system and you want to a system and you want to talk to your doctor. That's the next step is you want to talk to your doctor. You want to write down your symptoms and you want to make sure they take you seriously because women are dismissed and die at higher rates of heart attacks than men because we are often told, oh, you're just stressed. You're just anxious. It's just in your head. When the reality is, is that it's, we present differently, which is also what I go through in the book. It's what does it look like to have a stroke? I, I spent 10 years on the pill. Nobody even told me what it looks like. What does it look like to have a heart attack as a woman? It is different than it a man. It is very different. A lot of times it's going to be like, oh, I have indigestion. Like I just have indigestion and I feel like I have the flu. I'm fatigued. And, mm -hmm. you know, this actually happened uh, to my grandmother and she was getting really, really tired and she went in and they're like, oh my God, you had a heart attack. That's what, that's what went on there. But she had had a doctor say, oh no, you're fine. You're fine. You just have indigestion. Just take some Tums. And really what she was presenting with was a heart attack. And it's tricky. Women are tricky. But you know what isn't tricky about women? how well they know their body. So what we have to do as doctors is listen to them because women are really smart and really in tune with their body. Now let's talk a little bit about inflammation, shall we? Shall, so, let's, let's do it. Yeah, so <laughs> women not on hormonal birth control get their blood test for CRP or HSCRP, uh, highly sensitive C-reactive protein. It's a marker of inflammation. Mm -hmm. They then get put on the pill and what they find is that their CRP rises, sometimes three times the amount of what it was before. And this is very interesting because we know that inflammation is the root cause of so many chronic conditions. And so with hormonal birth control, especially like with the pill, what we have to understand is, yes, it does lead to nutrient depletion. So like magnesium, zinc, selenium, your B vitamins like folate, B12, uh, antioxidants like vitamin C, vitamin E, CoQ10. So there's that piece of everything. So these are antioxidants, protect you from inflammation damage to your DNA. And then you're on a medication that increases inflammation. And at the same time, it's causing intestinal hyperpermeability or leaky gut and skewing your microbiome. So and gobbles up some of those and gobbles up some of those nutrients, the CoQ10s, the B12, totally. the folate. Yeah. 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 And in that, to understand that the majority of your immune system lives in your gut. So anything that messes with your gut is going to mess with inflammation as well. And these cytokines, these are these inflammatory proteins that travel the body. They don't just stay in the gut. And in fact, you know, it doesn't take, uh, you don't have to have a medical degree to understand if the research shows if you have leaky gut, that's intestinal hyperpermeability, or you have um, in, incidents of yeast overgrowth or dysbiosis, you don't have enough of the good guys, that you have mood symptoms. Well, okay, it's not that far of a leap to say, well, now I'm taking a medication that actually causes all of that. And so therefore, now I'm having mood symptoms, not to mention the cytokine theory of depression as well. And so it's tricky because in the research, we can't say the pill causes a lot of things. We can't say the patch, the IUD. We can't say cause. We can say correlation. 
And a big reason for that is hormones are complex. There's receptors all over the body in every system. And so your natural hormones affect every system in your body. These synthetic ones affect every system in your body. And they're doing a whole lot of other things, these synthetic hormones, that it's not clean. I don't know that we're ever going to have a study that's definitively like the pill causes this, the patch causes this, because there's so much going on. It's so multifactorial. And, and inflammation is hard to pin down as well, totally. right? Because it's global. It's not just you're going to be inflamed in one organ or one system. It is, yeah. it is, it is systemic. It is the entire body that's going to be inflamed. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's the metabolic mayhem piece. <laughs> that's what women need to be in the know on because This is something that your doctor may have started you on this medication at 15, but it's very different to be on that medication at 45 or 35. And like you said, some women never have their own menstrual cycle. And I've had patients who call me in their 40s freaking out, thinking they have an infection. They're like, there is a whole lot of goop in my underwear. What is going on? Is that goop like if raw egg white was on the counter? Yeah, it's just like that. Congratulations, you're ovulating. Wait, what? This Mm -hmm. is what it's like to ovulate? Yeah. And what do we know about never letting a woman ovulate or ever be bathed in these hormones? Not a whole lot. What we do know is that without estrogen and progesterone, we don't build the myelin sheath in the same way. There are structural changes that happen while we're on hormonal birth control. And when it comes to neuroplasticity, that's what your natural hormones are all about, is helping these little branches branch off in the brain and you learn new things and multitask and do all this incredible stuff. We actually don't know what happens when you spend a lifetime on hormonal birth control. And believe me, someone who's been on it for 10 years, this is very inconvenient for me to even have to say out loud. Right. But we can never do better if we don't know. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-S-H-O-W.co. Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, Uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social, on Twitter, it's Dr. underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Dr. Stephanie Estima. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-E-S-T-I-M-A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professional's advice or care. There is no doctor-patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast, and the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.